When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. Welcome to Many Happy Miles, a podcast that celebrates all types of forward movement. Whether it's a sun salutation, a tandem bike ride, or in today's case, a 1,000-mile sled dog race across Alaska, we're here to say yay to it all and bring on guests to inspire you to move with joy. I'm Dimity McDowell, co-founder of Another Mother Runner, and joining me today as a special co-host is Adrian Martini, who may be the biggest Iditarod fan I know. <laughs> Welcome, Adrian. <laughs> I am so happy to be here. I'm so excited. I can't even begin to tell you. It'll be hard to not fangirl all over the place. I have them on my fantasy mushing team during Iditarod season, the folks that we're about to talk to. So it's very exciting. I did not realize there was fantasy mushing teams. I love it. Of course. Of (laughs) course. So tell me, um, what sparked your interest in sled dog racing? So it started when we adopted a husky who would be incredibly ill-suited for sled dog racing. He's just much too big. So I started to get interested in that kind of dog. And I had never come across a dog that really just wants to run and run and run and run and run as much as this dog does. I tried running with him once and he is far faster than I am and can last much (laughs) longer. So uh, we don't run together. Oh, Lobo Blanco. That's his name, right? Yes, that is Lobo Blanco. Um, the dog, we, he was, we adopted him from Puerto Rico and why there was a Husky in Puerto Rico is anybody's guess. Um, he was a stray. Um, but that started it. And then there is a writer named Blair Braverman. And I started following her on Twitter and she would tell all these great stories about her dogs. And it just kind of one thing led to another. There you go. There you go. Well, I can't wait. We are all harnessed up and ready to talk to Christy and Anna Barrington, a set of twins who live in Knick, Alaska, and run Seeing Double Sled Dog Racing. The two grew up in Port Wing, Wisconsin, along with their sister, Kat, and began their mushing career there. But more on that in a second. Christy has finished the Iditarod, a 1,049-mile race over roughly 10 days, 13 times, and Anna 11 times, which is impressive enough. But it's not enough for this pair. In the off-season, as they train their dogs, they also enter human races like the Kenai River Marathon, the Moose Nugget Triathlon, and the Backyard Ultra. Welcome, Anna and Christy. We're so excited to talk to you. Hi, thank you for having us. That's great. So wait, so that was Anna. And then, Christy, do you want to talk too? So do you guys sound exactly alike? Are you identical twins? (laughs) Uh, Yeah, our voices are very similar. Sometimes people ask us, like, identify like this is Chrissy and then say your answer (laughs) or direct a question directly to one of us. Okay. We'll do that. We'll do that. Um, well, cool. So kick us off Adrian. Okay. Uh, so Anna choosing at random, let's start at the beginning. Can you tell us about your first mushing experience? Oh, first for real mushing experience. 
or Christy and I had neighbors that had two Siberian Huskies. Oh, let's do that. Okay. We also had a Border Collie and a Great Pyrenees, and we got sled dog harnesses for them for our birthday one year. We were probably like 10, and we would go pretend mush with them. Um, we'd either run behind them or we built a sled out of a pair of downhill skis <laughs> and uh, a milk crate and the handlebar off of our dad's dolly. And we would just go out and play and bring snacks for the dogs and pretend we were mushing everywhere. Yeah, it was basically a two dog team and one sister right. <laughs> nice. pulling to get where we needed to go. How many broken wrists came from this uh, makeshift sled? Luckily, none. No, I don't think we've ever broken a bone that's required a trip to the emergency room. <laughs> that's nice. Cool. Cool. Well, so were you both um, athletes in high school, Christy, or where did you get your athletic prowess from? Uh, yeah, our parents were really supportive about us being active and being outdoors. And it was so fortunate to come into this world with a best friend and also someone who's you're identical. So just competing against yourself can be really challenging. So we always had someone to play one-on-one basketball with, um, play volleyball with, chase each other on bicycles and and running. So I think that's where uh, we got our athleticism was just encouragement from our parents. And our our dad was a really serious athlete. He was a uh, college basketball star, I guess you could say, and, and a swimmer. So we definitely played a lot of basketball. Because he was six seven, and we're about six foot tall, so we were the twin towers on the basketball team. <laughs> and Anna, you guys went—you both went into the Wisconsin Army National Guard after high school. Is that correct? Yeah, we both joined at the same time. We weren't sure what to do exactly after high school, and always liked the thought of the military. And we signed up when we were seventeen, so you had to have parents' consent. So they signed on, saying it was okay, and we just went from there with that. And it was a great way to be part of something. And not push to figure out what you want to do with some sort of major or anything or decide on a school. So it was a it was enjoyable and we got to go together. We went to the same place for basic training and the same base for our job training. So we got to stick together a lot through a lot of it or at least see each other a lot through it. And then we also worked out of the same um, unit for the guards. Wow. Cool. cool. So Christy, when did you know you wanted to pursue sled dog racing seriously? And did you both come to that realization at the same time or was it individual? Um, I think that was when we did a few semesters of university, we were like, oh, what do I do now? This isn't, <laughs> I feel like I'm still searching for something in my soul that's exciting and that I want to do. So we're like, let's take a break from school and kind of picked up a old mushing magazine and found a classified ad in the back that wanted help up in Alaska. So we kind of told her mom, we think we want to go do this. And she's like, well, let's, you know, pump the brakes on this. She's like, how about you just stay, you know, stateside, you know, let's not have a country between us. And you run off to Alaska to the last frontier, you know, (laughs) where you know nobody and you've never been there before to do something that, you know, you haven't done a lot of. So we found a place in Northern California that did dog sled tours and that was a good place to kind of reintroduce ourselves to it because we did sprint racing growing up with our neighbor's dogs. So we knew we enjoyed it. And we really loved dogs. And this was a good, like I said, stepping stone to, to, to see how much we really liked it. And we did really love it. So we found ourselves longing for more instead of doing these same loops over and over every day 
we thought, well, you know, it'd be great to do this for real. So we had the opportunity to go up to Alaska and met Dean Osmar and he pretty much hired us right there on the spot. And we thought, oh, this sounds great. So in 2007, we moved up and uh, 2008 did our first season with Dean and her mom was like, okay, this is great. You're moving up to Alaska where you've never been to live with somebody you've never met <laughs> to do something you've barely done. Good luck with that. I look forward to hearing from you. <laughs> and Anna, you kind of started the idea. You, you've done the idea around a couple of times less than your sister. Like, did you get the racing bug after her? Or kind of talk a little bit about how you guys both came to more the competitive side of sled dog racing. Well, we both were interested in at the same time Christy had the first offer to run a team in the Iditarod because we couldn't quite afford our own dogs yet or wanted to make sure this is something we ought to invest the rest of our lives in so we did what a lot of people do who are just getting into it and they are handlers for another kennel and um, the kennel that Christy worked at at Morning View Kennel they had a team of rookie dogs for her to run they're like if you want to race them in Iditarod you can so she train that team and I didn't want to do anything they'd be like oh that's not fair I can't do it with you don't leave me behind that kind of thing I was super excited for her so she got to do that in 2010 and 2011 and then also when I got my chance to run a team um, with Cook Inlet Kennels in 2012 Christy also ran the Yukon Quest which at the time was a 1,000 mile sled dog race that started in Fairbanks and ended in Whitehorse so that year she ran two back-to-back 1,000 mile races which was incredible and I had the best mentor. I had somebody who knows everything I've been through in life, knows what size of everything I wear and all that kind of stuff. So I could ask Christy every question about everything and just have amazing, great answers and somebody I could trust and not feel stupid asking, well, what about this? So it was it was a wonderful experience for me as a rookie to have her full of all that experience. Right. Anna, was it hard to watch her or easy to watch her on the race, the two that you didn't race with her? Were you able to be at checkpoints? I'm not in the Iditarod. In the Quest, I was able to fly into uh, Whitehorse and then get a ride to Brayburn and see her there. Mm-hmm. So I only got to see her like the last two checkpoints, which was cool, but not I wanted to see her at every checkpoint, but I was also packing for Iditarod food drops. But in the Iditarod, you can't really, it's hard to go to checkpoint to checkpoint. Right. So I'm just like everybody else watching the tracker on the computer, right. seeing her check in and out and seeing her moving times and everything like that. So it's great to have the technology that we have so I could follow her along like that. But at the same time, I wanted to be out there and just see the things that was she, she was seeing and all that kind of stuff. So I was so excited to he- see her finish in Nome. And she finished in the at night that year. She finished her first time. And to see her headlamp come up off the sea ice and start to head down Main Street and they got all the Christmas lights and the people were out there and stuff, I could think I felt what her heart felt that she did it and I always knew she could but to just see her and her team they look gorgeous crossing the finish line stuff like that I was just so happy right I can only imagine I am also an Iditarod tracker watcher so (laughs) I understand what that's like of course I don't have a sibling out there but yeah So, so Christy, when and how did you decide to start your own kennel? I mean, you kind of talked about how you come in as kind of an apprentice or a handler. And then when do you take the leap and, and start seeing double sled dog racing? Well, we had the opportunity to work at the same kennel for a while. And uh, Scott was really good about having us be able to have our own team kind of working with his team. So that was just, uh, Scott Jansen and 
from there, we ended up getting some property and I met my husband on the Iditarod Trail in 2014, but we didn't kind of reconnect until 2015 and then got married in 2017. And then when we were able to get property and in our own place, then we really started to visualize what having our own kennel was actually like. Because we, for the longest time, I don't want to say we were under somebody else's son, but kind of still had to respect what they wanted to do with their dogs. And we had a few dogs at that time that we were able to bring with us from the different kennels we worked at. So well, Dean gave us our first dog. And then from there, we got just had a couple more. And it just kind of slowly added on to, to more and more. And now we have 34 dogs. Wow. 34 dogs. Yeah. Because as you mentioned it, I want you to take a minute and just do a quick bypass because the story of how you met your husband <laughs> twice, he's not, he wasn't a sled dog racer at the time, right? So give us a quick, uh, it's a good, it's a good meet cute story. Yeah. So I've, I've always been fascinated with endurance sports and had done some long races myself. And so we were halfway through, I did around in the little ghost sound checkpoint of Ofer and I saw one of the fat tire bikes outside and there's a kind of a race running simultaneously of Iditarod called the ITI, the Iditarod Trail Invitational. And it's, uh, you can walk, you can ski, or you can bike to Nome. And he was kind of participating in this on his own, doing his own bike tour, not associated with the race. And he was at the checkpoint and I walked into this little tiny cabin and I saw him sitting there and we struck up a conversation and talked for a while. And this was in 2014 and kind of went our separate ways. And for the longest time, I could not get him out of my head. I think I thought about him all the way to Nome. Then we sent an email uh, after the race. So how was your journey? And this was mine and stuff. And that was the end of it. So I was like, oh, well, he lives in Anchorage. And at the time, I was living near Kenai. So I was like, oh, this isn't going to work. So fast forward another year later, he wanted to bike the trail again. And we crossed paths. And after the race this time, I was had moved closer to Anchorage, so I was in the valley, Matt Valley, and it's like, wait, this is actually doable now, and he is single, so we started making dates afterwards of, uh, like, hey, you want to go for a bike ride? Sure. You want to go for a mush? You want to go for a hike? And every weekend, we found ourselves doing something together, and I really had to get the the approval from the dog. So before we even got married, we did a tandem dog sled race together called the Denali doubles. And it was a really good test to see how he was with the dogs, if he could handle what I thought was fun and stuff <laughs> like that. So we were a good team and um, have been ever since. Right. Did he take you out on a fat tire bike ride to uh, make sure yeah, that you could? Yeah, he did. Right. <laughs> that was our first date. We went uh, to Aklutna Lake and watched the avalanches come down the mountains on the snow bike. So it was really cool. Oh, that sounds great. That's not a date you get in the lower 48, right? It is not. <laughs> no. <laughs> so I know with mushers, the question is always not how many dogs do you have, but how many dogs are you feeding? So is that also 34? Uh, yeah, right now we have some guest dogs staying at our lot. We kind of have a dog, sled dog Airbnb. So we have some guests right. here as of right now. But yeah, so we're feeding a few more than that. Right. <laughs> but the ones that we be that belong to us are 34. Right. And do you have any other pets? Anna? Oh, we have two cats in the house. Uh, and how do they deal with the dogs? Or the, do they just stay away from the dogs? Oh, they do good. They're strictly indoor just because there's just way too much stuff that okay. they could get into outside. But we, we do bring dogs in the house, not all of them at one time, but we do bring them in the house. They can hear the dogs down here and they just kind of hide until they'll check and peek around the corner, see if the dogs are still in the house and they wait for them to go away. They're just fine 
not having to deal with the dogs. It was funny though. The first dog that the cats ever met, the dog's name was Mouse. (laughs) Um, And it went well. Nobody got bit or swatted at or anything, but I just thought it was funny that here, here's meet this dog Mouse. So they're, they're good little cats. Good. So can you talk us through a typical day in your off season, including training for the dogs and then training for yourselves? Anna? Oh, yeah, it depends what time of off season you're talking about. Like in the fall, like September, end of August is when we start to run the dogs on a regular schedule again, like a training program. So they Mm -hmm. are pulling a ATV four wheeler on the dirt. So we'll take out a team of anywhere, eight, 10, 12 dogs and start out small. We'll start off maybe doing two or three miles. And what governs our progression sometimes is the heat. The sled dogs, they don't know how to give you only like 80%. Our racing Alaskan Huskies, it's 110% all the time. So you have to really watch them and see how they're responding to the heat, the endurance and the workload that you're giving them and then go from there. Because different dogs have different heat tolerances and they do acclimate, but it's just at different rates depending on the weather that you're going through. So as we start out with those slower things, it builds up to we're doing five to seven to 10 and it goes up from there. And then we're doing multiple runs a day. We might do two 15 mile runs in a day with a small break in between. And it just as the, then the snow flies and we're on sled. So it, it escalates rather quickly as the weather changes. Right. And how do you do training for your yourselves, Christy? Our last human being race usually is in October and that's a ultra trail marathon that we like to do in Girdwood. So after that, then our mm-hmm. running really kind of takes a back seat and we do a few Dryland races with the dogs, it's called cane across, or you tether them to a bicycle mm-hmm. and it's called bike joring. So we have a few of those that we do in September. So I'd say that we get in shape for dog mushing by dog mushing and doing all the chores that we do with <laughs> the dogs. But in the off season, when we're doing our, our landscaping business and then doing more casual, easy runs with the dogs, we take them free running. So we have 33 acres and we turn small groups of them, like six dogs at a time, loose and just kind of go gallivanting through the woods. So that's a lot of fun for them. And then every morning we try to run at least a 5k and then it depends what we have left for at night and what we're training for what we do after work is right. over. Cause it's not uncommon for us. Like Anna's uh fit watch to say that we logged over 30,000 steps in a day with everything that we do from our own running to our landscaping job where we're on our feet 12 hours a day. Right. Right. Yowzers. Yeah. Is that so fun? Do the dogs love it? So the dogs are not like on any harness or anything. So six at a time. I mean, are they just like, oh my gosh, mom, you're the best. And I probably don't call you mom, but that's what my dog calls me. So that's what I'm asking. Oh yeah. I think it's great cross training for them because they jump over logs and stumps. They, you know, kind of bully each other a little bit and, you know, jump over each other. And it's just, they're, it's a big play session for them. So I think it's really good for them to learn to move outside of, being in a team as as well. So I think it's really, really good for their development and just trust in you to be able to turn them loose and them for have recall, which our oldest dog is going to be 15. And that's, that's his job at his age for our small puppies. He takes them out on walks and he's got really good recall. So we call Jonah. They're following grandpa Jonah around and we whistle Jonah and he turns around and comes back to us and the puppies follow him and they associate that, Oh, she wants us, you know, to call us you know, and whistle that we go back to, to mom, like you said. And then we also play hide and seek with them when they get a little bit more adventurous and they turn around and you're not there, then they got to go find you. And that's, that's a lot of fun too. No, 
Oh, that's awesome. Yeah, I that's your awesome. dogs have much better recall than than mine. <laughs> Some are better than others. Mine would be in the next county. But... <laughs> yeah, hide and seek wouldn't work with mine either. Stay tuned. We're going to be back with Christy and Anna right after these messages. Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDIC. Okay, Anna, so so I want to talk about the dogs a little bit. Or we would both Adrian and I do really. We could talk about the dogs for probably like two hours, but we won't do that. But so you raise and race Alaskan Huskies, right? That's the breed that you guys focus on? Yeah, it's called an Alaskan Husky. The racing Alaskan Husky is technically a mutt. It's a mixture of a lot of different things to have this elite athlete. And so many people, when they meet the dogs, they're like, wow, they're so much smaller than I thought. And you know, TV has and movies have painted this picture of these 120 pound Malamute dogs and fur balls that are, you know, these powerhouses when really they're more like marathon runners. So they look very different than I think what Hollywood paints the picture to be. But yeah, they're a mixed breed of things. We did one of those dog DNA things and to trace back some of the dog's roots. And ultimately, what it traced it back to is one of the most oldest lines of dogs from the interior of Alaska. So they are still very deeply rooted in that Husky, but there's just stuff mixed in there to get other breed traits and qualities that we like. Sure, sure. So so when you have a new litter, when do you see the personality traits coming out? I mean, can you tell from like day two or is it more like six months or is it somewhere in between? And Anna, you could just answer that one as well. Uh, um, yeah, as they start to, you know, start to walk and start to eat, solid foods and you see some personality develop some of them you can they're a little bit more piggy and they kind of hog the food a little bit and other ones are maybe exploring a little bit more you know trying getting out of the house first and things like that and i think once they've weaned from their mom you see a lot more of their personalities come out whether they're a little bit more independent even though they're all raised and treated the same way just like some people some of them are a little bit shyer so they maybe are a little bit quieter and that and other ones are loud and all over the place and that kind of thing. So definitely I think maybe when they're weaned, you start to see their personalities start to come out. And you're right, they do have each one has their own attitude. They're not all the same. So they it's really fun to work with. You have all different kinds of like personalities that you work with in the team. Right. I guess this is for Christy. So are there dogs that work better with you than they do with Anna and vice versa or is that not as important? Um, I think for us, since we're so similar, it's easy for the dogs to do what Anna would ask and what I would ask. I have complete confidence in what I call my leaders to do exactly what I would want for Anna as well. Versus like when my husband's come out with me, I call it like substitute teacher syndrome. So they're willing <laughs> to try things like, oh, we usually turn here and go on this trail because it's fun to chase the neighbor's chickens. So this is where we're going, you know? Right. Uh, yeah. Like they're willing to try things versus with Anna. I think they, they know right. that oh, this is 
you know, she still means business because I think that's Anna. Pretty sure that's Anna, but it could be Christy. They look awful similar. And <laughs> our voices are so yeah. similar that we've been mushing next to each other. And I'll be calling my dogs Ha, which is left, and Anna will be calling her dogs G. And you can see the confusion. Like, then both teams will go left or right <laughs> at the same time, and they're, you know, almost crossing each other because they're, they don't know who to listen to because we sound so similar. Right. So how do you pick your teams for big races? Yeah. <laughs> um, it's a, a work in progress throughout the year. Um, in the beginning of the year, like, as, as we've raised our own dogs, it's just, for some reason, one of us tends to gravitate towards this dog or gravitate towards a certain dog or, you know, each of us have young dogs on the team and veteran dogs and we each have leaders and all that kind of thing. So whatever team is lacking, kind of that dog might go into that team. But Chrissy's put a lot of work into some leaders and those are her lead dogs. I'm not going to ask if I could use them or take them or anything like that. And the same for me, I've worked with other dogs to make them my leaders. So just as we're developing the teams, we kind of look at who needs what on their team and who's been working with who, and it kind of goes from there. Right. So Christy, how do you pick your lead dogs? Do they, is it a personality thing? Is it a a size decision? I think there's some mushers out there that they can look at a litter puppies and they're like, Oh yeah, that one's going to be a leader. I can't do that. And we always try everybody up and lead because you never know who might have that quiet confidence to lead a team. And there's different kinds of leaders. There's your command leaders, which listen to Jihaw and, you know, steer very well. And then there's your, we call them unguided missiles that have excellent drive and direction, (laughs) but you can't really steer. And that's why we usually run um, them in tandem so they can work together as a team. And then you have your really good trail breaking leaders or leaders that do really good on ice or going through open water. So there's different kinds of, of leaders among the leaders, but we, we give everybody right. a chance because you never know. And I always like to tell the story of this dog I had years ago named Nicholas. And I got Nicholas because he was named after one of my sponsor's sons. So Peter would call me all the time and ask, oh, how's Nicholas doing? And I, the best thing I could say was he's trying because he was the worst sled dog I have <laughs> ever had. <laughs> he would look backwards. He would start fights. and He was just a punk. And so he'd always run in the back of the team because I didn't want the other dogs to see him not helping. So he was always in wheel. That's positioned above the sled, which is not a very important role among the team. But for Nicholas, it was the best place for him to be. And then we, I had gotten to the point where it was kind of a stormy part in a training run I was doing and some of my other leaders were getting tired. So I was like, all right, let's just put Nicholas up there. I need some entertainment. This is kind of, you know, wearing on me. So I put Nicholas up there and it was like flicking a switch. He needed to be challenged. And this was his opportunity to show me that he wanted to do something else. And he was phenomenal. One of the best lead dogs I've ever had. He wasn't very fast, but he was wow. steady and never got injured. He finished the quest with me and the Iditarod in that same year and just was very, very good leader. So I was so happy to call Peter later and be like, Nicholas is leading and he's making my team this year. <laughs> <laughs> and he's the best dog exactly. ever. <laughs> <laughs> that is awesome. That's so cool. So I, I, again, I'm coming at this from a pretty, I don't even follow the Iditarod. Adrian at least tracks it. I'm, I'm pretty, uh, Iditarod newbie um but is there a difference between male and female dogs Anna? like is there like do you want to have a mix of both or do you want all male dogs or is it really just an individual dog thing um i think it's an individual dog thing statistically more male dogs finish i did rod than females 
But sometimes in a race, a female might be dropped because she's in heat and she's very cute and all the boys, that's all she can think of. They can think about. So <laughs> she might get sent home because she's a distraction for the team, perfectly healthy, but it's just not working out. So I don't know if that skews numbers a little bit, but there are some mushers who only run male dogs. But uh, I think that each dog that we have gets a chance to to try. And like Chrissy's got an amazing leader named Crockett and he's 75 pounds, gorgeous, big, strong dog, does great. And one of my best leaders is Rizzo and she's hardly 50 pounds and she's phenomenal. So it's just, it depends on the dog. Like Chrissy said, different skill sets for different situations and yeah, it just depends on the dog, if you ask me. Yeah, Rizzo's one of the best lead dogs we've had. Is Rizzo a, a pink lady? Is she named after the Grease? Or is, is, is it the, the movie Grease? Or is that a diff- is there a different oh, that, origin of her name? That's cute. I didn't know that. I've never seen that movie. But she's named after the Rizzo, the rat from the Muppets. <laughs> oh. <laughs> that's okay. the other fun yeah. thing. Mushers like to theme name their dogs. So they come up with these themes, whether it's characters from a book or a movie or weather or trees or rocks. So... That was our Muppet litter. <laughs> what what other Muppet <laughs> names do you have? Oh, there was Fozzie, Gonzo, Beaker, Kermit, Rizzo, and Sweetums. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. Nice. So, Christy, how long is a dog's competitive career usually? And then what happens when they retire? Well, that, that varies on the dog's career. I say they do their first Iditarod typically about two years old. And then... The oldest dog I've ever taken, the gnome, was 10 years old. So it depends on their individual mm-hmm. longevity. I think their peak racing ability is probably from three to seven. And even eight and nine, there's dogs you know, that finish on in the top 10 on people's teams. It just all depends on the dog individually. And then we, we do keep quite a few of our, we call them legacy dogs when they retire. And they have different roles in the kennel, whether they, maybe they just do the shorter distance races and not the thousand mile race or they teach puppies we have some that we like to take to schools and do demonstration with kids that are really good with kids um then other ones if we find the right home for them we we adopt them out to an active family that's ready to make that transition with the dog and have a forever companion as a as a pet so we do adopt some of them out as Mm -hmm. they they reach a a mature age right All right. So here's another question. Um, You know, runners get injured all the time. I'm curious about injuries on your dogs and how you know, minus them maybe limping. So Anna, what, what, what do you do when you see a dog injured and how can you tell if they are? Oh, definitely. Like the first tell when you're just looking at them is their gait. And we are constantly watching the dogs all the time and their gait and how they move is like their fingerprint. And if something is slightly off something, there's a reason why it could be something simple like, Oh, I just need to replace a booty or maybe, you know, you need to put the dog on the other side of the gang line. Maybe they don't want to run with the dog they're running with, or it could be something like they're starting to develop a, a sore muscle or a web split or something in their paw or something like that. So definitely are always analyzing how, they look when they're running, maybe they're not pulling as hard as they usually do. So because you know that dog so well, you're able to know abnormal right away. The things that they get issues with are sometimes the, they'll get sore joints, sometimes sore wrists, and those are pretty mild things. And we have different liniments and wraps and things that we'll put on there. And then they also get sore muscles, just like other athletes, and they get time off and massage. And then they also get, you know, set back a little bit in the training plan so they can make a slow recovery, come back to make sure that they're okay. 
Yeah. And then like, they're, they're just like with people's, when you're running your feet, if they're messed up, you're going to have problems. So we're all constantly looking at their feet and their toenails and everything. And that's why they wear those little booties uh, a lot because it's just mostly pre- trying to prevent issues that they get because they, they've got long kind of paw hair, which sometimes we shave off of it, but they'll get a snowball in that and that causes their foot to spread out, which causes chapping and cracking in their webbing of their feet. So they'll wear the booties. We put liniment and um, ointments on their feet and stuff. So you definitely got to keep their feet healthy. Um, just like a runner, you know, you get blisters you, and your toenails fall off. All that stuff happens, but you just got to keep, you know, have good shoes, change your socks and all that kind of stuff. So each dog gets that individual attention because some of them have tougher feet than others. So they might not need booties all the time and that. So it's it's, it's a lot of individual care and touch and massage and in a way of listening with your hands and just looking into their eyes and that communication you have with them and, and that kind of thing. So it's, it's a super deep relationship beyond being motherly to them. You're their coach, their nutritionist, their first, I guess, uh, medical person that they would see and all that stuff. So, I mean, that's a huge relationship with them. Totally. So I'm guessing Iditarod is like the Boston Marathon. It's the race that most people associate with the sport. So that's the one we want to talk about. Um, Besides training yourself and the dogs, what other preparations do you have to do kind of behind the scenes that most people wouldn't see? Uh, Two weeks prior to when we start Iditarod, our food drops are due. And a food drop is... Every single supply and food item you need for you and your dogs to get to Nome. And it's all due and it's about 2,000 pounds worth of stuff that we have prepared for about two weeks to be sent out um, to each checkpoint along the trail of your choosing. So it's fish and beef and kibble, dog booties, gloves and socks for us, people food, just everything you think you would need to get a thousand miles down the trail and all this, you have to think ahead. Right. All this is due, you know, two weeks before. So you're still trying to keep your team in shape and get all this meat cut into small snack sizes that you can feed and cook for your dogs out on the trail. And it's a, it's a lot of work. Cause if you didn't send it out there, you don't get it. Right. And Christy, are there special people snacks that you also put in there just to keep your kind of mood up on the trail? Yeah, my favorite thing to eat out there is dried mango and not the sugar-coated stuff, the real raw kind of dried mango. Even when it's 40 and 50 below, you can still eat it frozen or thawed out and it's, it tastes good and that's my favorite thing to eat out there. A lot of the stuff yeah. that I like to send out, you can eat frozen or if we put it in our, our cooker because I hate taking the time to cook. If I can eat <laughs> on the, the trail on the back of the runners and do something else, massage dogs and sleep at the checkpoints that's more important to me <laughs> right do you have something different Anna that you like or we kind we pack the exact same thing okay. <laughs> I mean with like trail mix and uh, a friend of ours made us these power balls or a peanut butter and oatmeal and chia seeds and flax seeds uh, and chocolate chips and craisins all rolled up together and you could eat that frozen and yeah so we eat the we eat the same same stuff Nice. So you get to a, a checkpoint and I've read multiple times that it's always dogs first. Um, so talk us through kind of what you do to your dogs as you're running this thousand mile race to make sure that they're able to do the next leg healthy. Do you want to take that, Anna? Oh, yeah. So we'll pull into a checkpoint and you get your parking spot and 
you park the dogs and you take them out of drive. So they have a tug line, the line that they're pulling from. You take that off of them. That's kind of saying we're taking a break here. And you um, you check in with the veterinarian. You give them their vet book, which is this traveling medical record that you have of the dogs. And they'll go through each dog. Listen, the vets are listening for things that I'm, I'm not trained to hear. Um, primarily, they're listening to the heart and lungs to make sure everything sounds and looks okay with that. And then we start to do the other care and are communicating with the vets as we're doing things. So we'll put down a big straw bed for the dogs. We'll pull off their booties. We'll give them a snack and we start cooking for them. So we'll, we have a cook pot that we have mandatory gear to carry with us and we'll get that going. Either we're melting snow or we got water out of the Creek or a whole nice, or they have water there and we are heating that up so we can give them a hot meal because hydration is super key for them out there. They do eat snow along the way is a little taste in there, but you want to make sure that they can get as much water as they want to drink. So you prepping their meal for them and going through the dogs. And as you taking off the booties, you're listening and feeling to see if anything needs extra attention. If, you know, it's like if somebody seems stiff, you're massaging their shoulders, a lot of shoulder massaging, I would say more than any area, and then you're checking their feet to make sure they're not getting any issues with their feet and getting them all comfy and that kind of thing, feeding them. And you kind of arrange them in your team so everybody's getting along because like a dog on my team, like Fog or Zickle, they, they're just really fast eaters. So they can't camp with like my dog Chaos because he's a slow eater. So I spread them all out, make sure everybody's camping together nice and get them fed. And you have to be efficient because sleep is super important for them too. If you're constantly out there messing with them or doing things, they're going to have an ear on you and an eye on you. Like, what are you doing? So you have to just be efficient and get the massages and the feeding and the care all done. So then you can leave them alone so they can sleep. So like you said, primary is first for them to get all the things they need. Nice. Nice. And how much sleep are you typically getting Christy at a stop? You as a person, not the dogs. Oh, we usually do a run that's about, I'd say six to eight hours long. And then we rest anywhere from four to six hours. So within that four to six hour time frame, you'll probably get an hour of sleep, maybe an hour and a half if you stay closer to, to six hours than four. So I'd say about an hour every stop you get, you get a nap. And then on the Iditarod, there's a couple of mandatory rests. We have one 24 hour rest where you have to stop racing completely, which you get a much more rest there. And then two mandatory eight hour rests where you get a little bit more rest at, at those stops as well. But that's, I think one of the most challenging parts is the sleep deprivation. Anna, do you always race together or just on the longer races? Oh, we seem to always race together because we train the same way and we kind of divide up the team. So we're trying to have the same capabilities. Um, there has been a time mm-hmm. or two where early in our racing, we were still learning things and figuring stuff out. Christy had a better team in 2014 and I don't want to hold her back. And she did well that year. And I came in eventually and it was great to see her and stuff like that. But we always want each other to do their best, but their best. But I have just as much interest in my team as Christy's team. So I really enjoy the fact that we can run together out there. Right. And Anna, or yes, no, Christy, how <laughs> are you off the sled in a race? How much are we off the sled? Yep. Yeah. Anytime we get to a hill, you're running up the hill. And then we also push the sled like you pedal a skateboard. And we call that pedaling. So we pedal a lot. And then when your legs get tired, we carry ski poles with us and you can mm-hmm. stand there and push like you're, you know, Nordic skiing. So you're, I feel like you're almost always doing something to help the 
the dogs and the, the dogs know when you're working too. And I think they respect that and I'm um, just being part of the team that way. And sometimes the best way you can help is to crouch down out of the wind and hide behind your sled. <laughs> I've never tried to figure how many miles we run on Iditarod though. Right. Some more than others, I, I imagine. So Christy, you've said, I, I read a quote that you said that mushing is as close to a magic carpet ride as you can get. And that's just so poetic and beautiful. Do you want to explain that a little bit more? Like, what are your favorite parts of mushing? Yes, I stole that quote from the late, great Lance Mackey. And I think it's a perfect way to describe dog mushing because it's all this chaos before you leave. Everybody's barking and jumping. And and then when you pull the hook and you take off, they're quiet. The dogs don't bark much at all when they run. And you can hear this quiet hush of the runners moving across the snow and maybe a, a little huffing from the dogs or maybe a collar or jingle here and there. But otherwise, it's completely quiet. And you you glide up over mountains and you cruise down the backside of them and in the stars and northern lights and uh, ravens swooping down. It feels like you're moving through the sky. It's just, it's incredible feeling. If you've never done mushing, I highly encourage to go try it and just see this unbridled enthusiasm that the dogs have and then how they all rain together and work together and it's quiet. It's so peaceful. It's like meditating. That sounds amazing. Even though there are high points, I'm sure there are low points. So, you know, what are some of the, the low points in mushing? I think Mother Nature decides whether it's going to be tough or not. We've been in temperatures as cold as minus 65 Fahrenheit. We've been in 80 mile an hour winds. We've crossed glare ice, open water, you know, foot deep of snow here and there with water underneath. And there's just been so many. And then also frozen bare brown ground. Some of those times is when it, it becomes hard. And you realize it, you recognize it, this is hard, this kind of sucks, but we've trained and we're prepared because we've trained for this and you just, you get it done. So definitely I think some of the most difficult times is because of the trail condition has been, you know, it's its own little hell. In 2014, the Dazzle Gorge is where we come up and over Rainy Pass and you go down and you cross this creek a bunch of times and going through there, there was hardly any th- snow in there. It was all brown ground. The trail was super narrow and rocky and trees everywhere. And the crossings were dangerous. It was it was white knuckle, tears rolling down your face, like take your breath. It was scary. It was scary to run down there. And then you got to Roan, you're like, other mushers are saying, has anybody died? Other mushers are saying, we have to halt. <laughs> we have to halt the race. We can't have people going through there. But they're like, oh, people already left. We have to keep going. So then you're like, okay, let's go. And leaving Rowan, that was just as bad or even worse, crossing the glare ice and there was rocks and, again, just frozen ground. Our brakes don't work in the ground. They're designed to stab into the snow and they won't stab into the ground. The dogs are having a great time. They're like, no, you have no control. This is fun. (laughs) And they were running and having a great time and that kind of thing. And it was dusty and it was like, oh, my gosh, that was the longest run ever. It was it was terrible. I have PTSD going down there. Anytime my brake hits frozen ground and my teeth chatter from it, I have flashbacks of that. That was the worst. Yeah, that's been my motivation on the 24-hour ultras I've done. That was one of the toughest 24 hours of my life was that run from Rainy Pass to Nikolai. And that was my motivation. Like, it can't be worse than that. And it never has been in any race I've done. Right. I have a, a 
half marathon that we did in uh, the middle of a nor'easter. And oh, wow. that is kind of my it's not nearly as as harrowing as your run, but it was it was not great. Yeah. It was not great. <laughs> All right. So you guys have been amazing. I love talking to you. But before we let you go, we have real, two really important questions. So I'll ask one and then Adrian's going to ask one. Um, so Christy, I'll start with you. So you've been on HDTV's Living Alaska. You've been in Vogue magazine. You've been in Runner's World and plenty of other media, I'm sure. So um, we want to hear about your favorite media moment. Like what was, is there something that sticks out? Besides, of course, being on the Many Happy Miles podcast. No, <laughs> oh, um. Well, I don't know. I guess recently it was a lot of fun. Uh, we got to be in a Portugal, the man music video. They wanted to put a little oh, dog washing wow. in there. So they have this mascot named Tank and this is great big pink dog. And we were mushing with it out on the historic Iditarod Trail. And it was a lot of fun. <laughs> That's cool. Anna, do you have a, a moment that sticks out besides being in a music video? Oh, that one first came to mind. It was fun being in Runner's World because they they also showcase how important the, the motivators the dogs are. They're the dogs are just the ultimate inspiration. If you're having a bad day or you don't want to go out there and do it, it's like, well, the dogs would do it for you. So they're like, yup, and then you get your shoes on and you go. So they're just and they they just love what they do. If people loved their jobs as much as a dog loves mushing and running, then everybody would want to go to work seven days a week. But so the right. fact that runners world, it's like, yeah, bring a couple of your dogs to the photo shoot. And they want to see the, as much as our enjoyment of running and running with the dogs as it was, how much they are a part of our life. So that was, that was enjoyable. I liked that. Yeah. So my very important question is this, uh, Christy, you have some amazing knitted sweaters with a dog pattern on them that look handmade and I think you wore them in this year's I Did a Rod. Uh, who made them for you? Uh, a woman in Norway made them. And it was a gift from another friend in Norway. Uh, we did a project with him and he wanted to thank us. And he was like, what can I bring you back from Norway? I was like, well, those sweaters are pretty cool. So she got our <laughs> measurements and she just needed her wingspan. And then she made them from there. And she asked what colors we want in pattern. And, and she made those for us. She did an amazing job. Right, right. I'm all, I'm all about the hand knits. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, they're they're beautiful and they're very warm. I've seen Norwegians like it gets colder, they just put on another sweater. <laughs> yep. It's <laughs> great. Well, thank you, ladies. You guys have been amazing. Really fun to talk to. I so one last question actually. What are you training for right now? I guess the season I imagine is over in Alaska, or do you guys still have enough snow to, to be running races, Anna? With um, the dogs. So we just finished our last mushing race on uh, April fifth. Um, it was just a short race up in Cantwell and we got first place in that one. So that was a great way to wind down the season. Other than that, we're still running dogs when we can do, our trail is deteriorating because the snow is melting. But as far as like people powered sports, Christy and I will probably participate in the Trent Waldron half marathon. And that's, um, at the end of May. Nice. Nice. Well, good luck in that. Good luck in all your other pursuits. Thank you for sharing your knowledge and love of dog racing with us. And, um, yeah, it's been really fun. Yeah, thank you for having us. Yeah, thank you. If you're looking for an adventure without a team of sled dogs, join us in Blue Ridge, Georgia for a trail race at the beginning of October. In the Race Like a Mother program, you'll train with a team of fellow Bammers for a 15, 30, or 50K race under Coach Christy Scott and then gather together in Blue Ridge for a trail race in one of the most beautiful spots in the country. For all the details, head to anothermotherrunner.com slash 2023 programs, which we'll also put that link in the show notes. Our podcast today was produced by Barry Medore of Fire on the Bluff. 
in St. Paul, Minnesota. Minnesota.